and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every single week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Around the World. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me on this fine evening, Nicole Davis. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Even if we watched what I used to think of as a homework movie this week, hmm. and <laughs> it turned out that it was, you know, uh, spoiler homework. I was glad I did. Wonderful. Yeah, uh, this is around the world week, so. I p- it was my pick, but before I introduce it, I want to introduce our other guest, or co-host, rather, David uh, Luzader. How guess. are you? <laughs> well, I just found out I'm not on the show <laughs> anymore, so this is a real bummer. It's been our a long 85-episode guest, David. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Uh, David, how are you? I'm I'm doing well. I'm a little bit uh, in limbo right now. If I sound a little bit different to you, the listening audience, just know that I'm not in my usual setup, but I am doing well. Well, we are glad to have you, despite the fact that you're moving around. This week, Around the World, that is a film that takes place not in the United States, was not made in the United States. I guess it could take place in the United States, now that I think about it. It just couldn't have been made by Americans. It needs to be an international film. And it was my pick, and I am notorious for MacGyvering my way around this to see English <laughs> films that are in my native tongue, but technically uh, international, but I didn't do that this week. This week I went with a a, uh, a Mexican film made in Mexico by a Mexican director, albeit a very popular one, probably the most popular foreign film of the last year or so, I would argue. Uh, I, I picked Roma, uh, 2018's Roma. Before I introduce Roma, I do want to introduce next week's movie. If you'd like to watch it, and follow along, it is You Did This To Us Week, which means you, the audience, gets to vote. Now, if you're oh, listening boy. to this podcast, oh, boy, is right. That means that the, the voting has already taken place. We know what we're watching because we record ahead of time. But if you want to be, to be able to vote, go to our Facebook or our Twitter, and you can join in on that fun and vote. We would love to make sure your voice is a part of of this gloriously awful tradition we have every five weeks. But future me, who knows what you tortured us with, is going to tell you what it is right now. It's Halloween week, and this year we're doing another movie ghoul round. It's going to be a marathon. You're getting five episodes in your feed Monday through Thursday as we lead up to Halloween. And the first of which is You Did This To Us, and you all picked Monster House. All right, you did this to us next week. Hope oh, we'll see what it ends up being. I know it's, I'm excited. <laughs> uh, this week was Roma, though a homework movie, as Nicole might call it. Roma follows Cleo, a young domestic worker for a family in the middle class neighborhood of Roma in New Mexico, delivering an artful oh. love letter to Mexico the woman City here. in Mexico, Mexico City. City. <laughs> uh, delivering an artful love letter to the woman who raised him, Alfonso Coran draws on his own childhood to create a vivid and emotional portrait of domestic strife and social hierarchy amidst political turmoil of the 1970s. So the reason I picked this, because we typically start off with why we picked these items was because I'd actually never seen this movie before. I think this is the first time someone's picked a film they had not seen. And the reason I did that was because 
this did feel like a homework film to me as well. It felt like something that I should watch and I should care about as a fan of cinema and as a someone who's passionate about cinema. And I just couldn't get my head around watching it because I didn't want to be in sad black and white Mexico for two hours. It just wasn't something that was really on the to-do list for the last year, as long as it's been out. Um, even as award season came and went, and it won a whole slew of Oscars and got nominated for even more than that. So I felt like now was a good time, because I really like a lot of Alfonso Cuaron's work, and uh, I was really excited to see this, finally, and oh, I am so happy I did. I have so much emotion about this movie to talk about this episode. It really captured me. Um, now, Nicole, had you seen it before? Because I know David had not. I had not. Many people had tried to talk me into seeing it or going, even going to the theater to see it. There were several cinemas in the Boston area that had this for a while. And I did not make the time for it. I did not go to see it on the big screen. And now I'm sad because I had to watch it on my phone today. <laughs> yeah, I think I think all three of us and that it's kind of interesting uh, question. There is all three of us, I think, watched it on our phones based on our conversations yeah. <laughs> uh, via Slack. And it's just we're in this new era now where, I mean, this is an Academy Award winning movie. It was, uh, you know, critically lauded, this kind of huge thing. But it came out on a streaming service that a lot of us approach it. I mean, yeah, from our, our couches, you know, what are we going to watch tonight? Which, which season of The Office will we put on tonight? But there is also <laughs> this transportability to it that movies, big movies like this, didn't ha- well, I mean big Oscar award winning movies these these I don't want to say award bait because it's not award bait it's a well made movie it's not the post I'm just gonna say it uh, <laughs> but, but the, you know the, this this movie that there's there's a whole lot to it is now coming to a streaming service that a number of people can easily access from their phone you can you can download this movie which is only available on transportable devices to take elsewhere. Shots yeah. fired at Steven Spielberg for several weeks in a row now. Uh, no, you're, you're 100% right. And I wanted to talk about this with this episode because you see something like Roma and a year or two before that, you had Manchester by the Sea, which was an Amazon instant video film. And that did really well in, in Oscar season. And now this coming up uh, Oscar season, we're surely going to see The Irishman for Netflix likely score some nominations. And uh, it really is is fascinating to me that not just these films are, are getting distributed and, and released by these streaming service studios, but all of the talent is just flooding to them. And it must be just because no. that's where the money and freedom is. Yeah, and now we should say, like, a lot of times, it's not so often that Netflix pays for these movies to be made. Sometimes, I'm sure they are more so, but a lot of the time it is a movie gets made, and then they're looking for a distributor, and Netflix comes along. And Which is, like, was hey, the case in this movie. It. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's actually a case for a lot of, because we're getting a lot of the uh, the Netflix films that aren't very good are because no one else wanted to distribute them, and Netflix could get them for cheap. Right. Yeah, I just want to make clear that, well, I mean, I don't think I 
I probably don't need to if anybody's listened to like any previous episodes of this show. So I don't need to emphasize how much I prefer to see films on the big screen, yeah. <laughs> if at all possible. Um, this was just a, a time constraint. I suddenly realized that the week had gotten away from me and I had <laughs> run out of time to see this movie. So I downloaded it to my phone and started watching it on my commute this morning because otherwise I would be sitting there playing, you know, Egg Inc. for 45 more minutes. <laughs> and um, I have the Planet Portal now for my egg farm, just saying. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, and so I was watching it on the train this morning when the full frontal male nudity hit. Yeah. Uh, that was entertaining. So, Been there. Been yeah. there. I just uh, <laughs> skipped ahead a couple of minutes, so I, I missed whatever interaction that um, Cleo had with Fetermine, uh naked in a bedroom. Uh, not a ton. <laughs> well, no, but it's. I think it is important because that is him saying, like, I've committed myself to something and I'm committing myself to you. Is basically what he's saying in that moment. And oh, 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 oh yeah. And later he goes out to the corner for cigarettes and never comes back. <laughs> oh, I okay. have so many thoughts. So, so many thoughts on him. <laughs> we're we're going to get the Fermin because we, I have a lot of thoughts on him as well. Um, but I, I, I do want to open up. I kind of want to go through this movie piece by piece. I think that's the easiest way to do it. And I do highly recommend that because the barrier to entry is so low, since most people have Netflix, I would probably recommend watching this film in particular over some of the other films we talk about. Like, I don't think you need to watch Jurassic Galaxy to listen to us (laughs) talk about Jurassic Galaxy. I do think it might be worthwhile to to go watch this one if you're going to listen to our conversation. So prefacing with that, let's talk about the opening of the movie with the still shot of the driveway tile and the rhythmic brush and slosh of Cleo cleaning it and how it sounds like the sea. It is goodness it's probably seven eight minutes long uh, of this water no, i don't think it's quite that long it just feels that it, long. it feels very long <laughs> okay it, it maybe was very, it does it was very old hollywood because uh mm-hmm. movies back in the day used to have their credits all up front they right. used to not have the credits at the end so you would sit there for probably literally about seven or eight minutes um in some old movies just looking at a still image while names scrolled over and then the movie would begin, um, and I like that, that. I think what they're doing here really sets a pace for the film because it is two yeah. hours and fourteen minutes. It is not a, a quick moving film by any means, um, but it's very methodical. And and I don't. I didn't find the like the beginning part. Yes, it feels a little bit long, but I don't think it's a detriment to the film. No, I I agree with you. I mean, it, I I was saying it feels like it's longer than it probably actually is, but that's not a bad thing because I'm I'm sitting there with it, you know, looking at the tile and looking at the credits fading in and then fading out and the new ones fading in and listening to this, you know, brushing noise of a broom and this repetitive sloshing of water rinsing off the tiles and goodness knows how many huge full buckets he must have had off camera <laughs> ready know, to go right that's an insane amount of water that they're getting i know onto this driveway um but it really it really does set you up a for the rhythm of the movie and b 
it sets you up for the climactic scene near the end of the movie that involves the ocean. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't even think about that. That's awesome because my my interpretation of that was a couple things. You know, a as David said, it, it sets the tone very well for the film. We are going to have a long of the uh, a lot of these long methodical shots, which I want to talk about separately. And then B, it also felt like it was setting the tone of him wanting to create a film that felt like something you would go and watch in the cinema in Mexico City in the in the early 1970s that would have that that opening title crawl and it would have you know this very different style of filmmaking likely black and white uh, as the film is in which we'll talk about as well and i think it also sets a stage in a way because so much of the film happens on like on this driveway like you spend a lot of time in the driveway um and there's other places yeah. they, they're inside the house they go on some trips there there's some you know there's stuff like that but so much of the character development happens within the confines of the driveway the kitchen and the living room which are all around one another and the little space that that cleo lives right adjacent to that and so yeah. much of her life just is in that confine and it is literally confined it it, this is a closed gated home in this middle class upper middle class community yeah and and uh you know it's it's mexico city is this big vibrant city i think today it's what one of the one of the most populous if not the most populous city in the world uh mexico city is huge but her whole world is confined to this small space and yeah, she does, you know, she goes out and there are other places around the city that she goes to, but where she lives, where she works, where she is most of the time is, is just in a very, is in a one house. And, uh, and, but the way this film is shot, there's kind of a sense of claustrophobia in a way, like with how much this movie uses wide shots. I, you just, I feel like you feel that space so much. Yeah. And it's, it's, in thinking back, it's kind of interesting. It's whenever she goes farther afield from the house, whenever she, you know, makes the trip out of the city, bad stuff happens. Uh, <laughs> yeah, every time. Yeah. Our, our poor Cleo, to no fault of her own, just can't catch a break. Man, um, because really, really, the the film takes place over a, a, roughly a year of, mm-hmm. of Cleo's life, and I think you know one of the things that I thought we'd probably touch on is the plot of the film and how it's easy to look at it and say that there's really not one, but there is. It's just it's very nuanced well, in the sense that the plot is just is just her life. the The plot is 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 this this struggle she's going and living through throughout her pregnancy and, and the, the year of this film and and adjacent to that the family struggle with the father and everything and it's it's not like a point A to B it's just it's just life I don't know how yeah. better to describe it yeah it's I, it, I think it's oh sorry go ahead. no you go ahead Nicole I, I was just saying I th- I think it's basically just her coming to terms with how she feels about the family and her mm. place in it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it starts out with her just sort of blindly accepting everything about her situation. 
and then as her circumstances change, she become you know she finds that the family is not as perfect as she thought it was, or you know it's things become a little more tempestuous, and then her own life has direct tempestuous things going on in it, and how that interrelates with the family dynamics and it's this very complex relationship and it's it's her finally it seems like she comes to a conclusion at the end of the movie about what her place is and she's she's happy with where she ends up yeah it's it's a little bit slice of life but it's not quite because slice of life tends to end up being kind of just vignettes where this has very strong through lines of the pregnancy and the divorce. Um, weirdly, not related story. I mean, they're, they're related storylines. <laughs> in fact, they take place very close together. Uh, but it's t- separate characters are experiencing these two things. Um, and there are you know moments where you're just you're seeing kind of the everyday occurrences of these characters but there's still a story being told you know the the story is all about her her pregnancy and and like and like nicole says her coming to terms with where she's at in life and in the positives and negatives of that as well and that relationship within the family i want to talk about that because she is a nanny to several kids uh one of which in particular four. Pe- uh four it took me a while to count them all i was yeah. like how many kids does this family have i know yeah, there's four of them four. She, she's particularly close to the youngest boy pepe um at least from what i could gather yeah and uh and Once she has this he's reincarnated right right yeah and she has this incredibly maternal instinct over them, and, and and that's the classic, like, she spends more time with them than their own parents do thing. Um, but beyond that, it's this interesting line where, you know, th- there's so many times in this movie where I was expecting, just based on prior experiences with storylines like this, the family to, to be unkind to her. And and the fact of the matter is, is that Sophia, the mother, is actually incredibly kind to her. And they have a very close friendship. And that friendship, especially as you get toward the crux of the film, borders into like, like she's a part of their family in a way. But it's also a very delicate line because she's still an employee. She doesn't get to watch TV with you. If you want a smoothie, you know, she's got to go get it for you. She's got to go live in the little house out back. And that's a very, it's a relationship in modern America. I'm just not really familiar with seeing, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's this is, I think the mother goes through an arc as well. I think she starts out. She, she does say some unkind things here and there, but it's because, and it's something that you don't know right away. It's it's because there's tension in her marriage. Right. Mm-hmm. And so anything that makes her husband unhappy, she gets very upset about and gets upset at the maids if they do the slightest thing that uh, might yeah, bother him. Um, but as the movie goes along, you know, and the husband leaves... And everything becomes a little more interdependent and everything becomes a little more, uh, gets a little more muddled and a little more mixed up. The, I think the mother starts to realize exactly 
what uh, how important Cleo is to the family, and that Cleo is actually her own person with her mm-hmm. own problems going on, and yeah. that she needs help and support too. She's a woman going through this trial that some man is in in a way some man is putting her through and she's just like oh oh you need help oh let me you know this is something i can do this is a power that i have where i can help you and you know we'll we'll support each other kind of thing Mm -hmm. and kind of comes around from her trying to keep her distance and hold cleo as just an employee and oh yes of course she's part of the family but that's just something you say kind of thing to realizing that Cleo really is kind of a key part of the family and a key part of the family dynamic and part of what makes her life more bearable Mm -hmm. you know yeah and you, you can you can see how bonded the kids are to her um, which they really could have, yeah. To Cleo, yes. Which they really could have played up in a way of like, oh, uh, Sophia becomes jealous of her, or she just keeps her around because the kids like her. But that's not the case, and uh, I find their relationship just so interesting because Cleo never resents them for her place. Um, as as we said, by the end of it, she is very accepting of where she's at. And seemingly kind of happy with it um, in that in that acceptance, you know, she gets to be with with these people who are family to her. You know, she she didn't she got pregnant and then had a stillbirth. Spoilers, if for some reason you're still listening and you're like, maybe I'll watch the movie later, but I'm going to listen to the first 20 minutes of this podcast. <laughs> uh, you know, she has she has a, a, a stillbirth, but then still, you know, still has this family. Those kids are so bonded to her that she's helping to raise. Um, and, and her relationship with Sophia is very complicated and layered, but I don't think any less important. Now, I have not seen the movie I'm going to reference yet. The both of you have. Um, I will be seeing it hopefully this weekend. Mm-hmm. But I've heard a lot about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where uh, you have sort of a similar-ish relationship with Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, where they are friends, but there is a hierarchy in that relationship. Oh, yeah. Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio is is kind of the the, the big dog. Clear slash friend. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that that really shines through here as well. Yeah. That, I mean, for, first of all, I didn't even make that connection, and you're 100% right about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I, what really struck me as poignant... And, and sad in a way, though, is that even uh, no matter how close she is to these children or how well her and Sophia really become to get closer as the movie goes on. And Sophia starts to become more of an independent woman that isn't hung up on the fact that her husband is a sleaze bag um, as she leaves him <laughs> and and is able to, you know, move on. Well, and, she's hung and up on it for the better part of a year. Than 30 seconds to figure out that her husband's a sleaze bag. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. his, his entrance to this movie we'll talk about in a moment because it's... It's bad. Yeah. Um, but in any sense, at the end of the day, though, there's there's two scenes that run in parallel to me. The first is when they're all sitting together, the father included, at the beginning of the movie, and they're watching, uh, you know, a funny show on TV, and they're all laughing and having fun, and and she, and Cleo's surrounding them and picking up plates and getting stuff, and then she sits down for a moment, and Pepe puts his arm around her, and and she's laughing with them, and it's like, oh wow, and then. And then Sophia's like, hey, go get Antonio, the father, uh, a drink. And 
she's got to go do that because she's the employee, right? She's not meant to be sitting there having fun and watching TV with them. In the same way, at the very end of the movie, after all this has transpired and the father's gone and they're all much closer knit, at the end of the day, she's at the last shot of the movie is her, still her walking around with their dishes. The family's having fun in their separate corner, and Pepe asks for um, a banana, a banana split smoothie or a banana smoothie, and and that right that's still her job, right? And and it's so it's they're still as close as they get, and they get very close, uh, especially in the scene where she saves the children, and after it, um, there's still that line that will never go away ever and and that that was poignant to me and i'm sure that's something that alfonso cron feels because what we haven't talked about is that you know the reason this film was made was because he had a longing to go back and look at in a, in a partially semi-autographical sense of his own upbringing in mexico city where he lived in a community like roma and was a as as he puts it, a upper class white Mexican. That's what he called himself. Um, no, he literally lived on that street. Yeah, no, oh wow, it's the actual house. street. Holy. Okay. It, wow. That, yeah, it's not the it, house, but it's the same street. Well, they okay. may have used uh, maybe yeah, maybe it wasn't. Yeah, I thought it was the the same house, but yeah, I knew it was at least the same street. Yeah. Wow. Okay. But, wow. So, but so we have the catalyst for this film, literally being that he he almost felt some guilt for not being able to tell the story of the nanny that. That, that raised him, that was his Cleo. And he consulted her several times throughout making this movie without telling her he was making a movie. He would go to her and be like, how did you feel about X, Y, and Z? And then it got oddly specific, and he'd be like, what did you wear in 1970? And, <laughs> and then that's when she started getting suspicious. She later told you know Vanity Fair when she was talking to them about it, she's like, I kind of figured he might be doing something when he was asking for outfit details. Um, <laughs> but but obviously he yeah, is he is close enough to this woman that he even though she was an employee of the family he calls her as a, as a grown man to have these conversations and that i think that is why this film is so poignant because it comes from such a personal place well and he's caught some controversy for that for the fact that you know number one you don't get a whole lot of detail of like Cleo's interior life, you know, she doesn't she doesn't give away a whole lot on her face, um, and you just sort of see her from the surface, and at the end you see her being, if not content with her lot, having made complete peace with it. And I mean, she's not only you know getting the kid a banana smoothie, but she's doing stuff she hasn't even been asked. You know, she's gathering everybody's vacation laundry and taking it up to the roof where the washing machine is um, to go get that done without even being asked to do it because that's part of her role in the family and she doesn't question it. And, you know, Alfonso Cuaron has caught some flack for that and for him just touching on the political turmoil but not really showing, like, Cleo's opinion of it and what side she would take in it and how she feels about it. It's just, you know, she's on sort of the periphery. But I, 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 I kind of feel like she's a little bit, Cleo's just kind of a little bit swept up um, in everything. And 
not you know maybe it would have been nice to maybe have a little bit of a deepening of her character a bit in some areas but there are just some scenes where like people are making choices around her and for her at times um like when they go to go see the the crib at the uh, the store um you know she's she's there but I kind of feel like, you know, she's just like, this is a choice that's been made for her that she's going to to be here. Um, and she just, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, that's, I think there, yeah, there, there definitely are some places that it could have been, it could have been deepened, but I still felt like I had a pretty good sense of who Cleo was. Um, and I, and I want to give definitely big praise to, um, I'm going to butcher her name. Yeah, uh, Aparicio. Yeah. Okay. So I wasn't going to actually. Uh, Yelitsa Aprisio, who was uh, who played Cleo, who was also nominated for Academy Award for Best Actress, um, is so good in this movie, um, and she's just she's so well cast because I, I don't know. I, I I think I'm kind of over the movie of like ah, and here's the help, and they're this like stunningly beautiful supermodel, <laughs> and I don't want to say that she is not a beautiful woman. She absolutely yeah, she's is a lovely woman. But she is like kind of in that same way that Martin Freeman is really good at being cast as the everyman because you could you could see him as someone you could see, you know walk by on the street. I feel like she kind of has that. Like she's she has the look of someone like you could walk by on the street. Uh, she's just a very yeah. I, 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 I'm I'm skirting around the word average because like it, it makes it seem like oh, I'm I'm calling her average looking, which is not the case. But it's just she's she's real. Yeah, there yeah. that's the real. And, and to go back to to what Nicole brought up, I think another element of it is that because Cleo lives in this life that is separate from everything around her, she lives and breathes this family. She does not leave this house without the family unless she's presumably running errands for them or something like that. I, I she has some time off. I'm sure, she, I'm sure she does. Well, she does a time off. She goes and, and, and sees uh, for mean and, and other people. Um, we'll get to that. Uh, but I think at the end that of the day, guy. her, her environment that she's in is not conducive to us, to her giving us the kind of character that maybe does have visceral opinions on the kind of, politics that are causing people like Fermin to go out and want to kill people. Um, you know, she is living somewhat separate in my mind to so many of her peers around her, uh, as, as is the nature of her job. Um, and with, with this actress, I was really going into this thinking she better wow me because this woman got nominated for an Academy Award and this is the only movie she's ever made. Um, and she's not a professional actress. No. And like, like no one in this movie is uh, aside from like S- Sophia and a couple other people um, like the grandmother grandmother has been in this movie and that's it. Um, she's shockingly good at giving you everything without saying anything because she's not a talkative character, but she's so emotive in her facial expressions and her and her emotions that you know exactly what her character is thinking. And even when she's not, even when she's a bit more demure and, and kind of held back, you you get a really strong sense of she she does such a good job of playing the maid. And um, her, I, I'm just looking on her Wikipedia right now. Apparently, her mother uh, was a maid as well. She's raised by a single mother who worked as a maid. So this is actually a world that she would have probably seen firsthand. Uh, 
she's just she's so good in this movie absolutely i think deserved that academy award nomination absolutely now let's talk about some of our other discussion topics as well um Karan's penchant for long lingering shots and how complicated they must be to film this is something i want to talk about because um right from the beginning when you have as we said what is surely a ton of people dumping water on this and perfect harmony in order to get that perfect shot at the entrance of the film you have so many and this is this is a hundred percent an alfonso Cuaron thing he does this in all of his movies but he does it more in this movie because it is somewhat of like more personal project and he's really going to town and he is literally the cinematographer we'll get to that as well and you have these shots whether it's the the scene where the forest is on fire on new year's and they're putting it out um to the scene where cleo gives birth to the to to all these other different scenes that are long they're incredibly long scenes five six seven minutes ten minutes sometimes with usually like a single camera shot that barely pans like even our entrance to cleo in the movie when she's going from room to room cleaning up is a slow pan back and forth through the stairwell mm-hmm. of the home as we follow her. Well, yes. And it's fixed on Cleo. Right. So it's st- yeah. it's almost like the camera is staying still because there's a fixed point exactly. in the middle of exactly. the Exactly. And and yeah. it's what blows my mind because every single time I think about the the technicality of how good your actors and your crew and your cinematographer need to be to pull something like this off where everything looks that good. Because if you look at a traditional movie scene, I don't think people realize how quickly the camera cuts. You might look at a movie scene and the camera cuts 30 times and you never noticed it because it was fluid and there's a great editor. But that doesn't happen in so many of these scenes. It is one shot. Yeah, there is a, a really great video um that is about the movie Bohemian, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Rhapsody. Yeah, the Bohemian <laughs> Rhapsody video. I, I may have referenced it before on this podcast. Uh, if you just if you look up Bohemian Rhapsody editing on YouTube, I'm sure you'll find it. And this guy <laughs> talks about editing and, and when you should edit in a in a film, and uh, the purpose of it and why Bohemian Rhapsody is so bad with its editing. Uh, but that's something that they kind of take away here in a really interesting way. And like you said, some of these shots must have been really tricky to get, especially I'm thinking that last, uh, not the last really long shot, um, but one of the last really long shots when they're on the beach and she goes into the water to save the kids. Like, cause you're dealing with situations in which you have to have children actors uh, in kind of a risky situation, reacting exactly on cue. Yeah. And yeah. And it's the, the, you you run a risk sometimes with with long shots um, becoming a little bit tedious. It's probably uh, like four rescue divers under right, the water. Yeah, surface. yeah. I, I know. I'm <laughs> sure. I'm sure. But for us, the viewer, for me especially, I'm like, no, get these kids out of that water. What do you do? I'm thinking yeah. of getting Cleo because not only is Cleo in the film. She cannot swim. The actress cannot I swim. Yeah, yeah. I learned that right. as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking this is something you'd never even shoot in the U.S. for SAG would be in an uproar. We need to throw some kids into the ocean. If you can CGI the kids, you can do it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and I, I'm sure there were plenty of safety measures, but I'm not thinking about that when I'm watching her out there. I'm like, no, yeah. she can't lose one of those kids. 
And, right. And on top of that, that style of, of filmography that, or, or cinematography that, that Quran is so good at, and he does this, like one of my all-time favorite scenes ever is the scene, the war scene in Children of Men when the baby cries and everyone in the, the, the fight on both sides hears the baby cry. And it's a long, drawn track shot, just like all these shots where, you know, Clive Owen takes the, the baby out of the hospital. And um, he's very good at those. And he's also incredibly good with this film wow. as the cinematographer of this film with so perfectly framing all of these shots. I, I, this is the first movie I've ever seen where I felt like I could take any frame of this movie and frame it, like print it out and frame it because it was so beautiful. So you're saying you haven't seen Mad Max Fury Road. Okay. I, no, that's oh, totally boy. fair. But I, I just mean uh-huh. like, I, w- I would print out Mad Max and be like, that is glorious. You know, Valhalla awaits. Whereas with, <laughs> with this, I'm like, this is fine art. I could, you could put this in a gallery. It's a little different, but I see your point. I, it's just, it's so stunning and everything is so meticulously and carefully framed that the yeah. the the style in which he's shot it is just unbelievably gorgeous it yeah. is beautiful yeah uh this this won best cinematography at the the academy awards uh and rightfully so it beautifully shot as mentioned alfonso caron uh ended up being the director of photography which was not originally um who it was supposed to be it was supposed to be uh, Emmanuel uh, Lubitsky, Lubetsky, uh, who took home the uh, uh, the Oscar uh, for Gravity, Birdman, and The Revenant, also Caron films. Um, but then Caron had to step up on this one, and they and they kept him in mind with it. Uh, but as you said, like every you know, he's explained on a couple of podcasts. And there's a lot of information you can find about it. Um, if you're into cinematography at all, I suggest looking up some of these interviews. They're super interesting, but he wanted every single frame to just be packed full of information. Uh, and it is, this world feels so alive. You've and never seen such beautiful shots of dog poo in all your it's, life. It's never. true. It's absolutely true. And when and, you read, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead, David. Uh, go ahead. I have another thought, but add on to that, and then I'll I'll say what I was going to say. Oh, I was, I was just going to say when you read interviews about the the set dressing for this movie, they would build the inside of shops that they are walking past to as if you were in them in the 1970s, even if they're not going in. He just felt that if you were passing and happened to be able to catch a glimpse in the window, this should look the way it's supposed to look. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's a lot of work. It's, a lot of work. It is, it, it's a lot of work. Um, there, there's so much to win to this, but one thing that really caught my eye is that this movie has almost no close-ups. This movie is pretty much all medium shots and wide shots, largely wide shots. Yeah, with, true. With mediums kind of spursed in. There's a couple of close-ups that are very, very rare, uh, which is interesting for a movie to do you don't you don't really think about how many times like a character is talking and we're just tied up on their face and that doesn't happen in this movie Um, part of that is because of these really incredibly long tracking shots that happen um but i think they they do so much into that uh they do so much into making the world feel lived in and real and that when they're out in the city or they're they're at this weird party, 
there's just so much go- like you you are in this these characters lives you're in cleo's life right there with her and i think you feel that on in every inch of the frame well i think that's that's part of it that's part of making it feel more real is that it's unless you are like about to kiss your girlfriend or hugging a friend of yours it's rare that you are close enough to a person as a close-up shot is in a Mm -hmm. movie you don't see people that close up very often and so it you you mostly see people from like a medium distance you know you see them from the waist up from you know four feet away or you see however far away it is um right but it's you know the one shot i can think of where it seems more intimate is the the scene in the delivery room where you know cleo is up much closer to the camera and you can see them working on the baby out of focus in the background and it's utterly oh that scene is so wrenching and it it really kind of pulls you in there and i mean i have you know thank god not quite in those shoes but i have been you know when i gave birth to my oldest son he he had a very slow heartbeat and they did uh, cpr compressions on him right after he came out you know they whisked him off to a table and they did the suction on his lungs and he didn't cry and they started doing cpr on him and i'm just lying there 10 feet away you know like she was just lying there while they're doing other stuff to you like trying to deliver your placenta and whatnot, and you're watching your child's life in somebody else's hands, and it was just, oh my god, it's just heartrending, absolutely heartrending. And that pediatrician, I wanted to punch him right in the face, you know, because he's not unkind entirely. He, he is very desensitized to what's happening. And yeah, it's clear that he doesn't yeah. feel a whole lot about it. Well, well, he's yeah. not callous to her about it, but he's just kind of perfunctory. So, so it's all it's all a single shot, like like a lot of these scenes we're talking about. And you know, it goes from her delivering the baby to them taking the baby into the background to, you know, trying to get the baby to 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 breathe, and then eventually this pediatrician bringing her back the baby, and like aggressively telling her to say goodbye because he immediately needs to take this, this stillborn baby away from her. And yeah, for I just what? to wrap it in a cloth. Right. I didn't understand there. the urgency of this. Like she, he's like, she, he, he puts this, this, this baby, this baby's body in her hands. And then like 10 seconds later is saying, say goodbye, say goodbye. He's got to go now. It's like, why? And maybe that's because. <sighs> so let's get really deep into this. Would they do that if Sophia was giving birth? I they might have. I mean, yeah. number one, it's 1970, right. and the women's yeah. rights movements was not in 100 percent full swing yet. And that was, you know, they were still giving a lot of women like twilight sleep to give birth, at least in the U.S. Um, and it's the sort of thing where there was still this sort of paternalistic attitude of. You know, don't let them don't let them hold the baby either at all or don't let them hold the baby for too long because you don't want them to get too attached and too upset before you have to take mm. it away. 
Yeah, kind of thing. That, that's probably a more of a better way to look at it. My thought was was is are, are they being more callous to her because this is a poor woman they have to get in and out and and I, I don't know. It's just it's such a heart wrenching scene. Maybe a little bit, but they're they're already treating her more nicely because her employer is friends with the doctor. Sure, sure. <laughs> It's 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 a scene that is just, you know, David. You put in our docket the film's more surreal moments, and it's it's surreal in the sense that you watch this happen for five minutes, and it just feels like time stops when you're watching a movie, because you know what's happened, like right from the get go. You know yeah. what happened, but you have to yeah, sit the baby through it. Limp and nothing's mm-hmm. happening. Yeah, it's it's horrific. So what are some of the other more surreal moments of this film? Like, what were some that you were thinking of, David, when you put the center docket? Uh, so, like, the the New Year's Eve scene where everything is on fire and the man is singing. <laughs> uh, and and then, like, so the... What is that outfit he's I in? just is called him the Krampus? Wicker Man because that... I just didn't know. Yeah, that's appropriate. It's kind of like a... I think it's like a... He used to be like a monster for the kids to chase around the kids. A big porcupine. Kind yeah. Of. And there's also the moment where the, uh, I can't remember his character's name. His name is Latin lover. Uh, uh <laughs> doctor, uh, oh no, no. Yeah. Professor, professor Zovrek or yes. something. Oh professor my God. Zovrek. What a yeah. scene. Which is a real guy. That's a real person who existed. He was like a daredevil. That's weird. It's weird. It's just, yeah, these weird little moments that, uh, like, and everything, everything about that house they go to with the rich people is weird. Yes. <laughs> it's but so it's, Can we talk about the dogs? What are they shooting at? Yeah, let's talk about the dogs. Yeah, so, so oh, every, every dog that has been the previous, you know, animal to live on this, this rich person's and there's abode. Like 20 yes. There's 20 dogs living there currently. Right, and they've, right. they've stuffed all of their, their heads and hung them on the Just walls. The Just the heads. Just the heads. Like hunting trophies. Yeah. In the room where all the children sleep. <laughs> oh, my God. And there's this sick I moment mean, if you're where... A kid, if you're a kid, it's either going to freak you out or you're not really going to be thinking it through and you're going to think it's great that you have all these dogs' heads to pat. <laughs> it just depends entirely on what sort of child you are. And it's got a great shot an, where I the current dog age. comes in. Yeah. I think there's yeah, What's the current dog that? thinking? Yeah, like, well, I'm next, I guess. Like, oh, I used to smell that guy's butt. I don't know. <laughs> it's It's just, it's these, it's... Had this movie has this moments of absurdity and these little bits of weirdness that I think actually add a lot to the movie. I don't think that, I don't think it ever subtracts anything. It again to everything I've been saying before. It just it makes this world feel more lived in. Yeah, agreed. Because sometimes Cause, you come across weird stuff. Because like sometimes that. life is weird. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes there's a guy who's like, yeah, balance on one leg while putting your hands above your head. And only great, and only master athletes can do this. <laughs> it's actually really difficult. You tried sometime. Yeah, I need yeah, to actually yeah. go try what he was doing because it's like not just balance on one leg. It's then you know make it's turn, a yoga pose. Yeah, turn the leg into a little triangle and put the, the flat of your foot up against the side of your your leg. 
Um, yeah, I forget what it's called. It's a yoga pose that he's doing, but he's doing it with his <laughs> eyes shut, which makes the balancing bit. That makes it even better that it's just something that's taught at core yoga, but is also something he is describing as incredibly rare for anyone to yeah. be able to do. Um, well, it was Zovek is it was a real person, and he's he's played by a guy who goes by Latin Lover. That's how he's credited. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Because the actor used to be a, a used to be a luchador. Oh, I love beautiful. it. Chef's kiss. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's. I also want to talk about what brings us to him because he is he is overseeing a training for um, a bunch of folks that are that are learning. It's like a martial arts day camp for adults. Um, it's what it seems like. But after I looked up some of the political stuff in this movie, it turns out that at that point in time, the government was training these people in like paramilitary outfits to to do their dirty work basically and that particular they were sort of group was posing as rival student factions yeah no that makes sense cuz it's yeah cuz they're learning how to fight with weapons but they say like there's right. an american they think they the people watching over them it's kind of like that's weird that's not just a guy who would teach you martial arts like it seems like the military's involved, right? And, and we later do learn that that the reason we 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 were there is because uh, Fermina is there, the man that abandons um, <sighs> abandons Cleo after finding out he's he's gotten her pregnant, and uh, he, we also find out that Fermina is part of uh, an outfit that seems to be in what in real life was called the Hawks in English or, or Los Hawcones, which was like a. a Par- essentially like a paramilitary student protest group if i if i have that right um a, 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 it was like that contra para student protest right group. it was right they were supposed to look like a, a rival group of students it was the right age group exactly that they had and they weren't uniformed so it was supposed to look like a rival student group but i mean basically they were assigned to hurt and kill the the protesters and and, and for me it's all wrapped up in this and, and this is a character from the entrance of him the full frontal nudity that nicole accidentally watched in a public place um, <laughs> yeah that was to, that was a surprise yeah he's hanging down yeah it's it is, it's like out. five minutes of it too um to to him finding out in the back of a movie theater that cleo is pregnant saying ah oh, cool kisses her hugs her want any ice cream leaves <laughs> and it's yeah. almost funny. What if she but, had, I mean, what if you she can had see it coming the ice from a cream? mile away. Yeah, it's just like, because you kind of feel like she she sort of knows what's going on as it's happening. But oh, it's like, 100%. trying to, it's kind of trying to be like, well, maybe, nope, maybe I'm just, you know, maybe, maybe I'm just paranoid. Maybe I'm just paranoid. And then, nope, it, it happens. And like, in a sitcom, we would be like, well, what'd you think was going to happen? He, you know, somebody would like later on and be like, of course he did that to you, but just watching it and then watching the events unfold after you're just like, no, right? Because she no. goes, she goes to find him and she finds him at this, at this, you know, training ground. Well, like a couple months later, she goes to, sure, find sure. Him. She, she's a couple months pregnant and, and God, what a, what a, asshole i just yeah he, he oh he is so frustrating guys well, i don't even have words for it he just threatens the beater yeah, not only he not only denies that he's the father but he 
threatens her. He physically threatens her. And then just screams in her face? If she ever comes around again. Yeah, screams in her face. Like, and a moment that is actually pretty funny, karate kicks around like if you ever come back here again and then like does like karate demons like which is horrible for him to threaten her but then it's like such a child about it like look at my cool moves uh i hate him oh, is he's the, the short worst. answer he's, he's <laughs> the absolute worst he, he, yeah. in, in, in a movie that has dr antonio uh, counterbalancing him as the yeah. other douchebag he's still the worst but i do love his cousin that is dating the the other maid because oh, yeah. I love when she when Cleo rolls up on him at his house and he's <laughs> God we're practicing in the most garage band setup ever but he's just standing around smoking a cigarette without pants on Ramon <laughs> I mean he is wearing underpants thank goodness yeah he, I mean, he is wearing <laughs> underpants but this one like she, you know because. He's annoyed as he shows up, but then it's like, you know, of course I'm going to help you out. It's like, well, hold on. I got to get pants on. I don't know why. It's just, it's so funny. And, and I feel like Ramon he, is at least a halfway decent guy. Right, oh, he right. certainly seems yeah. to be. I mean, you know, and he goes to, I feel like it's important to mention for the context of this scene that his garage band is three dudes sitting in kind of an outdoor shanty area like it's outdoors. Yeah, three, um, three dudes in a shed in the backyard, basically. Yeah, and <laughs> one of them just starts noodling the Star Spangled Banner in the background while he's talking to Cleo. Yeah, and I'm I'm betting if you ask Ramon what he does in that band, it's vocals. I would guarantee yeah, you, it's or vocals. I'm the manager. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, refresh my memory. What song did did uh, uh, Inuit Man play on the flute last week? Oh, it, Star Spangled Banner. Star Spangled so twice yeah. a week we've had impromptu Star Spangled Banners. Okay, um, beautiful. What beautiful. what a movie! But yeah, Ramon is 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 oddly endearing. I mean, when you when you're introduced to him, it's the same scene you're introduced to to uh, Fermin, and and he's wearing a a flowered patterned button down shirt that is like four oh. buttons down. It is like it is like it's so seventies chubby Latin lover. <laughs> I just love it. It's so great. Yeah. I'm here for a moment. And, and for me, is, is wearing this bizarre. I mean, I remember, I'm old enough to remember these guys. He's wearing this t-shirt with these two little naked children that says love is, and the two little naked children are holding hands. Um, it's like love is, I forget what it says. Love is something. And they're shown in a heart. And they used to make like little statuettes of these two little naked children. And it was really weird, guys. I was about um, to Google love is naked children. And I decided that would be yeah, not the right no, search. That. <laughs> that gets you on so many lists. I, I can't watch Get Arrested while we're podcasting. <laughs> I, I, as I was putting together the words, I realized that altogether they just didn't work. Um, no. Yeah. No, I... I and let's talk about the other the other jerk, Doctor Antonio. So he is the father. Oh, he, he, is, he is Sophia's Sophia's husband. He's he's off in Quebec, quote unquote. Um, when what he's, I love later is when Sophie's telling the kids about that. He's like, he's no, he's not really in Ottawa. <laughs> you don't even care about the lie anymore. <laughs> no, but I mean, over you it. know that this guy is not a great guy. Just. Instantly, because he owns this 
giant compensating for something Ford Galaxy that is literally only four inches less wide than his, like his garage, basically than the the hall, the breezeway, the whatever you call it, the carport that he's pulling into. He literally has like two <laughs> inches of clearance on each side of this gigantic car, and he just very carefully negotiating. And it's like five minutes, you know, getting into the driveway without dinging the car and scooching out of it. And then like his wife tries to hug him and he just stands there like awkwardly and uncomfortably. And I'm instantly like, Ugh, I don't like this guy. Oh no. Well, and the, uh, he, yeah. he complains about the dog crap. There's like four kids running around underfoot, making a mess everywhere they go. And he's complaining about the dog's mess that the maid hasn't gotten to yet. Don't get me started on the dog in this movie. Uh, but also, but us, <laughs> Just really highlighting his jerkiness, like the when he shows up later in the movie when he's at the hospital, oh, and he comes, you know, hate him even more, right? While Cleo's in in labor, and he's like, he's you know, he's offering a little bit of comfort to her, but then uh, she's got to go one way to go deliver the baby, and he's like, well, I can't come with you. Your doctor won't let me into the room, and the doctor's like, oh, you can come in if you want. And he's like, oh, I can't. I have an appointment. It's like, come on, man. Why couldn't just like go with that lie first, you jerk? Yeah, why bother being nice to her in the first place? I was a little yeah. bit, I mean, you know, I can forgive her because she's in active labor and in huge amounts of pain, but I was just like, why aren't you yelling at this man and going, Your children need you. Yeah. You haven't given them an iota of child support since you left, you rich bastard. <laughs> but I think but I think his what he does in that scene also just illustrates him how he is he is ready to, to put the blame on other people so quickly because he puts it on the other doctor before yeah. he comes up with his own lies. She's like, ah, not going to let me in. Right. Yeah, he's an asshat. Uh, there's no other way to describe it. He's horrible. I mean, we see him later on in the movie with a different, you know, younger um, woman and, uh, and Sophia has to do her best to make sure the kids don't see it and then swear the older one the secrecy when when he overhears her phone call about it um and uh yeah it's heartbreaking it's it sucks because like you know this is like there's a great subreddit called am i an asshole uh and people explain whether or not something they did whether they are the asshole or not the asshole and the community votes as his life well, and oh, i have issues with subreddits okay david knows about it but in any case one of the abbreviations is just everybody sucks here no one's really everybody. the asshole just everybody sucks and that's how so much of this movie felt at a, at a certain point to me is just like everyone well, is just being kind of garbage right now well, um yeah but but well, yes, yes. Uh, Antonio and Fermin definitely suck. And also, just like the, the feel- weird, the weird hacienda getaway with all the rich people. I'm like, everyone is oh, awful here. Insane. Yeah, but I, but I just I think so much of Sophia's awfulness uh, is just the circumstances around her have broken her. Oh, she gets way better. I I I I am. I don't want to say I'm an advocate for Sophia. But I think Sophia as a character has a dramatic arc, as Nicole she, mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah, she has a uh, she has a journey she goes on. Hundred percent. It's not front and center of the film, but we see it. Yeah, hundred percent. I I appreciate where she comes toward the end of the movie and her disregard for that car and her ability to get a car <laughs> at the end of the movie that can actually fit in that carport. 
So. Oh yeah, I love like as soon as the husband has left, she immediately makes an insane traffic decision that <laughs> destroys the sides of the Ford Galaxy <laughs> because she's used to driving the Volkswagen Beetle, right? You know? Right. <laughs> so, which is a tiny little beep beep car that can go anywhere, and she, you know, pulls the Galaxy up between these two trucks on the road. And rather than stop, when she starts hearing the metal scraping, she just keeps on going. Once you're in it, you're in it. Stop line. There is no good way out of that situation. Uh, well, you know, after the first couple inches of uh, yeah, stop the car and you put it in reverse. Yeah, <laughs> uh, she also didn't seem to to fully. Uh, be there <laughs> at that point. That that oh, was the no. point at which she was in just huge emotional distress it's... while driving around. Um, it almost seems like she she almost pours attention into Cleo as a escape from how upset she is about her husband. So. I, yeah, I think at least partly. Yeah, so at least partly. Now let's also talk about and this will be one of our closing discussion topics here as we near the end of the program. Uh, the black and white of this film, the reason Koran says he shot it uh, or edited it in black and white was because he wanted it to reflect the fact that so much of this was built on his own memories and experiences. So he wanted it to look as such. And he felt that black and white would be a good way to illustrate that, illustrate that. But additionally, they shot it in color in digital color and then made it black and white in post, which allowed them a lot more freedom versus filming in black and white initially in terms of um, playing with contrast and playing with your hues and your styles of, of blacks and whites. And as David kind of puts in our doc, it has like a digital feel of black and white. Like, you know, it wasn't shot on a true black and white camera, but I kind of love it. It is so rich. Well, yeah. Well, and what, what Caron said is, I would refrain from the classic stylized look with long shadows and high contrast and go to more naturalistic black and white. I didn't want to hide digital in a, quote, cinematic look, but rather explore a digital look and embrace the present. Now, I think that goes into what you're saying, uh, where the, the, he's exploring it as a memory and not as not reflecting upon it as like, oh, I'm telling this this historical drama, I guess. Right. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's a childhood memory. So it's, you could think of it as like black and white photos of your past, or you could, Mm -hmm. you could go for the symbolism of it. And, you know, the child's view of things in black and white and not so many shades of gray. Yeah. Yeah. The contrast isn't really high. There's a couple, you know, there's some very dark blacks and very white whites, but the contrast, like it's very natural feeling. It's not, it's not like the way that when you put your camera on black and white on your phone or something, it's going to contrast things heavily to give it that really dramatic feel. It doesn't have that. It, it looks so nice with, even with a lack of color, it just, it looks so nice. You, yeah. yeah at, at no it point in this world is alive. At no point in this film did I feel like I needed color. And I think that is the success of a modern black and white film. Another thing I will say is that our third or fourth episode here on the podcast, Logan, uh, which was a future classic pick of mine, that has a black and white cut that was edited similarly, where they took 
you know, they took more liberties with the way the black and white was saturated and contrasted because they were working off of a color print initially. As a result of that, it's a gorgeous black and white cut. I highly recommend that to anyone that loves Logan. Uh, now, as we close down, uh, Spielberg's comments. David, what did Spielberg say about this? Let's. Oh, no, no. I was talking about because that, that was attached to. Um the the point about how now there's you know streaming services have these movies and And spielberg said earlier this year in february that like uh if it's made for a tv format it's a tv movie it's not it's not a film it's not something that should be nominated for oscars Uh, and i i think that spielberg is a curmudgeonly old man i agree yeah it's a little (laughs) it's a little elitist you know going to the movies is expensive it's a little ableist Going to the movies can be difficult for people with mobility impairments. You know, it's... It, think it through, Stephen. I agree. Before you talk again. I agree. So, so guys, it, it turned out uh, somewhat serendipitously that none of us had seen this movie before. Are you guys happy you watched it? This is something all three of us actively avoided. So... Well, I didn't actually avoid. I was just kind of like, yeah, it'll be there. You, you, that's yeah, what there I mean. There are other things yeah. I'd rather watch first kind of thing. Right. But, but yeah, but, of course, I'm very glad I saw this. It, it was beautiful. It was well done. I was very, I, I thought it was very engaging. I thought the performances were great. Yeah, definitely glad I saw it. Right on. Yeah, I'm saying nominated for 10 Academy Awards, and I think it absolutely deserved every single nomination. It was great. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. And this was exciting for me because I was excited to finally see this movie and find something that I could bring to around the world that was in a foreign language. Um, Speaking of which, I think the subtitles are incredibly well done on Netflix, just in the way they display them. Like if you actually click something on the Netflix display to show you something, the subtitles will dynamically move to not cover things. So Netflix is at the forefront as well of not only producing these movies, but showing them uh very good next week is you did this to us though again my future self mentioned that at the top of the program it'll also be in the show notes so you can follow along and catch up with whatever it is you ended up voting on so we will see what that is nicole where can people find you online uh you can find me watching over our facebook page facebook.com slash movie go round podcast you can find me on letterboxd at uh nicole underscore davis and uh, that's about it very good what about you david you can find me around the internet under the username davluz that is d-a-v-l-u-z so twitter and instagram you can find me there you can also find me on the brokebot mountain podcast that i host with phil rude very good. Definitely check that out. You can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. You can find links to all of this in the show notes at social.mgrpodcast.com. We'll be back next week with a You Did This to Us round of Movie Go Round. We'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs>